the journey. And I'm going to teach this around um, a really good story in uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. This is part of your um, devotional reading for this week in the Harmony of the Gospels. So as you read this, you'll read it in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But I want to focus on Mark's um, account of this particular story for very good reason that you'll find out as I continue to teach. So Mark chapter 10, verse 17, and I want you to leave your Bibles or your um, whatever you're using to read Scripture, I want you to leave it open at this passage um, as I go through this, because I'm going to go through it like kind of, you know, in chunks of uh, verses uh, and teach you expositorily uh, through the Scripture today. So verse 17, as Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. And Matthew slips in there in his account of this. He says um, that this young man asks a question, what do I still lack? Which is fascinating, isn't it? What do I still lack? I've kept all the commandments. And remembering that this is, this is still Old Testament times, even though the Gospels are in the New Testament, it's still under the Old Covenant because Jesus hasn't died and risen again. If it was, um, if it was after the cross, Jesus would be giving him a very different message. But keep the commandments. But I've done this, Lord. What do I still lack? And Jesus answers his question. In verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and they said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. What a great statement. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. Like Jesus didn't already know that. But thank you, Peter. We appreciate everything you say sometimes. Verse 29, I tell you the truth, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Lord Jesus, open our hearts and our minds. Spirit of God, teach us through your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Everyone said, Amen. I've called this the journey for a very good reason. Jesus is taking this young man on a journey. He's taking his disciples on a journey, and he's taking all of us through this story on a journey of faith. I want to really emphasize that today because faith is a journey, not just an event. 
when Shane Willard was with us a few weeks ago, he mentioned uh, something to do with the sinner's prayer. And, uh, and I appreciate what he said. He's, he talked about, you know, the prayer that we often use at the end of a message. And we say, you know, if anyone wants to give their life to Jesus, raise your hand. And if people put their hands up, we'll lead the whole congregation through a prayer. And he rightly said it's a fairly uh, new uh, invention in regard to church history. And the prayer itself is not found anywhere in Scripture. The first time the prayer was used was uh, probably back in the 1800s. was started by a guy who was a pretty wacky Pentecostal dude. Um, but then it was adopted by a couple of guys that we know quite well and, uh, and respect as great leaders in church history. And that is Charles Finney and D.L. Moody. And they started this thing using it in their public gospel meetings where they would lead crowds of people in a prayer. Now, I still do that, and I think it's important that we give people an opportunity to respond to Jesus as long as they understand that this is an event that leads to a journey and not an end in itself. Amen? And I get concerned. Sometimes I think people say that prayer and they go, oh, I'm okay now. And you never see them again. They never get discipled. They never actually become followers of Jesus. And is it actually harder to reach them the second time because they actually think now because they've said the prayer, they've had the event, that they're actually okay. Christianity and the Christian faith is not about an event. It's actually about a journey. And we see this beautifully illustrated through this story today. So let's go back to verses 17 to 19. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, so he was keen, and he fell on his knees before him. Now, a rich person would never do this. This is a, a sign of great respect for a wealthy man to come and fall on his knees before anybody. And he said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus' response is interesting. Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. There's a couple of truths that are inherent in Jesus' question here. First of all, he's asking this man, do you recognize that I am God in human form? Do you believe I am the Messiah? There's no one good but God. Do you believe I'm God? The second thing he's asking is, do you understand that no one is good but God? So it means that you are not good. Even though his answer to Jesus' next question has a lot of kind of self-righteousness in it. And Jesus asks the question in verse 19, you know the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, you shall not defraud, honour your father and your mother. What Jesus does here is quotes five of the ten commandments and all five that he quotes are what we refer to as the horizontal commandments of God. So the ten commandments are divided into two, the first four are vertical, they have to do with us and God. So the first four commandments, all about our relationship with the Lord. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image and worship it. It's all right to have photographs, but you don't make an image and worship it. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Sometimes that's referred to as, as blasphemy. And we often think that that is just not saying the name of God or Jesus as a swear word, but it's a whole lot more than that. It's actually that we shall not attribute anything to God that doesn't belong to him. In other words, brothers and sisters, we need to be really careful when we say, God told me to do this, or God's told me to do that. I, I, I Actually, I don't like it when people say that. I'm very careful saying that myself. Because first of all, what if I'm wrong? I'm blaspheming. And secondly, it gives no one any recourse to ask any question. 
There's no accountability in that state. Well, God's told me. And I have people from time to time at Bayside, they'll say, oh, God's told me to go to this church now. And I say, oh, oh okay. Oh, well, you better, you better go then. Because God's told you, like, I, I can't, even though I think it's probably a really crazy decision, your timing's weird and, and all of that kind of stuff, but God's told you, so hey, knock yourself out. I heard someone say recently, God's told me to go to such and such a church, but if I don't like it there, I'll go here. So has, has he told you or not? And that's edging on this third commandment. It's, it's blasphemy. We need to be really careful. And then the fourth commandment, uh, which is also vertical, is remembering the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. That is having a day in the week, which it doesn't need to be the, you know, a Saturday particularly because it wasn't under the Old Testament, but it needs to be a day where we largely refrain from our normal activities and we spend a significant amount of that time uh, worshipping Jesus and conscious of him. Amen. And serving those in need as well. That's all part of Sabbath. And then the next six commandments are all horizontal. They all have to do with our relationship with one another. And so honour your father and mother. Uh, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. And then the tenth one that Jesus did not mention to this young man, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. Matthew adds, and love your neighbour as yourself, which is the summary of these horizontal commandments. He said, Paul talks about this in Romans 14 and, and in Galatians. He says, love your neighbour as yourself is the summary of all of the law and the prophets. Love does no harm to its neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. As long as you're loving your neighbour as yourself, you actually end up fulfilling all of these commandments. If you love your neighbour, you won't murder them. If you love your neighbour, just a thought, um, if you love your neighbour, you won't steal from them. If you love your neighbour, you won't commit adultery. And if you love your neighbour, you won't give false testimony against them. These commandments have to do with human relationships and the commands and are the, and are the commands of God that can be tested rather than the sins of the heart. And I want you to notice that because you know whether you've murdered and so does somebody else. Well, they knew. <laughs> um, if you steal from someone, they know that you've stolen from them. If, you know what I'm saying? Those things can be tested. But the 10th commandment is interesting. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbour. That is a sin of the heart. No one else might know that you have covetousness in your heart. Your neighbour doesn't even know that you want what they've got. And so Jesus actually leaves that commandment out here, inferring that this young man was actually guilty of that commandment, of breaking that commandment, that he was actually coveting. That's why Jesus zeroes in on his wealth. The other thing that, that Mark records is that Jesus adds a commandment. It's very easy as we read through those to think that Jesus is quoting all of the ten, or, you know, five of the ten commandments, and he does, but he also kind of sneakily slips another one in there. The second last one, he says, do not defraud. Now, that's not in the ten commandments. It's not one of the ten. It's a little extra one that Jesus slips in because he's addressing this whole covetousness thing in this young man's life. Defrauding in the day was the intentional holding back of wages for labour. Now, this young man was a wealthy young guy. We find out later that he was actually uh, a landowner and it's likely that he would have employed hundreds, if not thousands of people and he was guilty. He was wealthy, but he was covetous and he'd been holding back 
um, the, either by not paying his workers in full or underpaying workers in ways that kept his workers poor, and so he was guilty of these things. Verses 20 to 22, teacher, he declared, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. I want you to notice what Jesus did at this point. He did absolutely nothing. The young man, face fell, turned away, walked away sad. And Jesus didn't run after him and, you know, oh, sorry, maybe, you know, sell everything was a little bit, um, bit harsh. You know what I'm saying? Maybe we could just knock it back a bit. Let's start with, ooh, 5%. You come and follow me, sell 5%, keep 95, and we'll work on the 95% on the way, on the journey. What do you reckon? Would that be better? Suddenly, Jesus sounds a horrible lot like John Cleese. But he doesn't do that. He just stands there. Man's face falls. He's sad because he had great wealth. He wasn't prepared to follow through with what Jesus said. And he walks away and Jesus stands there. In fact, we find out later that he turns around to the disciples and he starts using it as an object lesson. Jesus had zeroed in on the one thing that was stopping this young man going on his journey with Jesus. And right there, I want to pause in this message and I want to ask you a question. And it's in your message notes, but I would also, you know, if you haven't got your message notes, write this down or make a note of it at somewhere. And I would like you to spend some time in prayer this week focusing on this particular question. The question is this, at this stage... On your journey with Jesus, what demand would he put on you to move you, move you forward in following him? So you can personalize that. In this stage in my journey with Jesus, what demand would he put on me to move me forward in following him? Is there something, and you don't need to go on some big witch hunt to try and find something. Most of us know what's holding us back. In our journey with Jesus, we, we find ourselves uh, at different times on the journey and the Holy Spirit is starting to put his finger on an attitude uh, or a behavior or something we're doing that we shouldn't be doing or maybe something that we're not doing that we should. And he's putting his finger on this and he's saying, this is something that you and I need to deal with together because until you do that, you're going to be hindered on the journey. That's what Jesus was doing with this young man. Until you deal with this, you can't journey with me. We can't move on from here because this got to be dealt with first. And so spend some time reflecting on this during the week. Ask the Holy Spirit, if it's not obvious to you, ask him to highlight something that needs to be dealt with right now. Let's read on, verses 23 to 27. Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. A lot of people have got stuck on this camel thing. Jesus refers to camels a number of times in Scripture. He picks the camel because the camel is the largest 
animal in Palestine. Uh, the Babylonian Jews would use the example of an elephant. So they would say it's harder for an elephant to pass through the eye of a needle. Um, it was a colloquial saying, it was an idiom, and we know when we use an idiom, we know in our particular culture what we mean by that idiom. So they would have known. It's, a, it's an idiom that means it's highly unlikely, if not impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. It's like our idioms, we, we use stuff like, oh yeah, sure, when pigs fly. You know? uh, what do we mean by that? Um, are pigs ever going to fly? Well, you know, you don't know in this day and age, of course. There could be flying pigs, genetic mutations, whatever the case might see. But right now, it's an impossibility or a highly improbable thing is what Jesus is... Sorry, is what we're teaching through those idioms. We have a number of idioms um, that people use generally about hell, whether they believe in hell or not. We talk about when hell freezes over or it has a snowball's chance in hell or it'll be a cold day in hell. Uh, funny that our society uses all of that, isn't it? And what, what they mean is it's highly unlikely, if not improbable. And that's what Jesus is talking about here, where he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard it taught over the years that the uh, eye of a needle refers to a little gate in the wall of Jerusalem and that it was a small gate and a fully laden camel could not pass through that. And so the owner of the camel would have to unpack the cam camel first, take everything off, and then get the camel to kind of crawl through the gate. Um, that's not correct. Um, in medieval times, they did actually build a wall in Jerusalem called the Eye of the Needle, but in Jesus' day, that did not exist. What Jesus is talking about, he's using a colloquial saying. He's using an idiom of the day. This is improbable or impossible to actually fit the largest animal in Palestine, a camel, through a hole that is only big enough to put a thread through. That's what he's teaching here. Um, just as a side note here, I wrote a blog this week called Should the Bible Be Taken Literally? And in that blog, I go through lots of the different types of language that are used in the Bible. I encourage you to have a read of that if you haven't already read it because it will really help you in reading and understanding what you're reading when you're reading the Word of God. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. Really? Seriously? Did he have to put that bit in? He was going so well, you know, no one's given up all of these things who won't receive a hundred times as much. Fields, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters. That's all lovely. We're persecuted. I don't want persecution. Anyone else? Yeah? Could have left that bit out. Matthew doesn't talk about it. Luke left it out. Why did Mark have to mention it? For goodness sake. But he did. And in the age to come, eternal life. And then he says, one of the many paradoxes in Scripture, many who are first will be last and the last will be first. In other words, the people that look like they're first, like this young man, wealthy, first in life. Some of those people are actually going to be at the back of the queue in the age to come. And then he says, but the people that look like they're last now, like you disciples, you've left everything to follow me and right now you kind of look like you're last but there's going to be this great reversal in eternity where the first will be last and the last will be first. I want to just make a comment here because Jesus mentioned something that has been often misunderstood or mispreached or taught, um, particularly by some of um, the American 
prosperity preachers in regard to the hundred times or the hundredfold as the King James Version, the hundredfold return. And I've heard it preached many, many times uh, over the years that it's all about, um, you know, if you put one dollar into the kingdom, you get a hundred dollars back. I just want to say that's not what Jesus is teaching here, okay? It's fascinating as you, if you ever watch American uh, Christian television, uh, you know, and it's the hundred dollars, sorry, the hundredfold return always has to do with giving to their ministry. Isn't that a coincidence? Have you noticed that? That's amazing. So, yeah, you give me one dollar. God will give you a hundred back. That's not, God is not a slot machine. Let's not reduce him down to that level, church. Uh, that's not, nothing to do with that. What it is actually saying is, whatever you give up for Jesus and the kingdom, you can never outgive God in the blessing of your life. Amen. And he talks here, he says, um, uh, you know, giving up, um, where are we, homes and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and fields, um, if you give those up for me and for the gospel, you will get a uh, hundred times as much in this present age with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Now, I want to just comment on this hundred thing because whenever Scripture mentions a round number, it is not normally to be taken literally unless the context of that verse infers a literal interpretation. So he's using a hundred here, not as a literal hundred, but as saying, if you give these things up for me and the gospel, then, then you're going to get plenty back, don't worry. That's what the scripture is teaching. Let me give you a couple of examples from scripture just to emphasize. Psalm 50 and verse 10, uh, if we can put that up on the screen. This is one of the Psalms of Asaph. And God is speaking here and he says, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. Do we take that literally or not? Because if we do, which thousand hills belong to God? I want to borrow a cow. But God, I need to know, is this cow situated on one of the hills that belong to you or not? Which thousand hills? Is he teaching that? No. The thousand there is is a symbol meaning a lot, or in this case, it means everything. God's saying, I own all of creation. The cattle on a thousand hills. We see the same at the end of the book of Revelation where it talks about God's people ruling and reigning with Jesus for a thousand years. Now, a lot of people take that literally and they call it the millennium, but it was never ever meant to be. It's in a, it's in a, it's in a symbolic book. It's, a, it's um, apocalyptic Hebrew writing, which was very popular in Jesus' day. And, and I would say the vast majority of the book of Revelation is apocalyptic and is meant to be understood symbolically. And so the thousand years is not a literal thousand years. What it means is that the people of God will rule and reign with Jesus for a very long time. And then Jesus will wrap this age up and usher us into the eternal age, the age to come. And so that's what he's talking about here with this hundredfold return. It means a significant amount that those who had left family, fields, or homes would receive back in this life. Craig Keener in the Bible background commentary states it like this. Their reward would be found in believers sharing possessions as a family in this world and receiving the life of the kingdom in the world to come. And we see this being lived out in the book of Acts. We get into Acts chapter 2, all the believers were together. They, they didn't count that anything that they owned actually just literally belonged to them. They were always ready to share with any people in need. Um, they, they, they met in each other's homes just like we do. And, and they did life together and they shared together. 
What it means is that wherever you go, when you, when, you, um, when you sacrifice and you join the family of God and go on the journey with Jesus, you find that you enter a family that is so much bigger than the one that you may have had to leave in following Jesus on the journey. Like I had to leave my family 30 years ago. Uh, they're all in Perth. And yes, I get to see them from time to time, but I certainly haven't seen them as much as if I lived in Perth. Christy sacrificed even more. She's... she's from Ireland and she's an only child and she's lived over here for um, it'll be 30 years next year Uh, and there's many times that she's felt homesick and wanted to go back there but we are convinced of the call of God on our lives to be here and so we've left those things behind and and but God has blessed amen and we found that you enter into the family of God and suddenly you got lots of mums and lots of dads and lots of brothers and sisters, and lots of homes. And wherever you go in the world, you, you, you meet old friends for the first time because you're part of the family of God. Everywhere you go, you meet a Christian and then you get invited out for a meal or you get offered somewhere to sleep and, and you've got brothers and sisters and families and homes, hundredfold, many more times, and that's wonderful. I want to finish up by identifying this rich young man for you. number of commentators have got ideas on this. Some people think it was Saul before he uh, was Paul and they suggest that Saul wanted to come to Jesus but didn't like what Jesus said and he was so angry that he ended up persecuting Christians um, until he had his Damascus Road experience. Other people think it was Mark who's the author of this gospel. But there is strong argument from culture and history that Barnabas was the rich young man. Barnabas was Mark's uncle which is why I find it interesting that Mark would be the only one in recording this story to say Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mark wasn't even there uh, as an eyewitness, um, but he was obviously chatting with Uncle Barnabas at some point in time, and Barnabas said, even though I didn't like what he said to me, I still felt loved by him. And so Mark records that there. Barnabas went on a journey, and Jesus led him. Because he didn't like what Jesus had to say. His face fell. He was sad. And he walked away. And I don't know whether it was days or weeks or months or maybe even a few years that Barnabas went on that journey walking away from Jesus. But something happened somewhere on that journey where Barnabas suddenly realised that he'd been wrong. He got to the point where he realized, I actually need Jesus, where my wealth and my covetousness and underpaying workers and all these things that have been a barrier, I actually need to get things right now. I need to make Jesus not just my saviour, but also my Lord as well. And he did a thing that we call repentance, which is changing your mind, changing your heart, and then changing your direction. He changed his mind. He thought, you know, I didn't like what Jesus had to say But Jesus was right, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to turn around, and I'm going to walk toward Jesus, and he became a follower of Jesus Christ. The next time we read about Barnabas is in the book of Acts, which tells us that he'd counted the cost and actually found that it was worth it. In Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, Luke addresses him by his real name, which is Joseph. Joseph was a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles had nicknamed Barnabas. The word Barnabas or the name Barnabas means son of encouragement. And what was Barnabas doing? Well, he sold a field that he owned and he brought the money 
and he put it at the apostles' feet. That act in the culture of the day meant that this money no longer belonged to Barnabas. It actually belonged to the church. Let it down at the apostles' feet and he gave it to them to distribute in any way that they felt was the right way. But particularly what would happen with that finance is it would be distributed to anyone who was in need in the church community understanding there was no Centrelink social security benefits back in those days. People were desperately poor without any possibility of having help until they became part of the Christian family. And the church started looking out for its own. Barnabas is doing here what Jesus told him to do. Sell what you've got and give it to the poor. I want to finish up by just telling you a little bit about my own journey. And some of you have heard my testimony before. If you've never heard the whole story, if you go onto the church website, you'll find the Rob Buckingham story there. It goes for about 40 minutes. Um, But at the age of 19, um, as an atheist hitchhiking around Australia, I was uh, picked up on the road by a truckie who turned out being uh, being a born-again Christian. And we were involved in a head-on collision with another truck, and the two guys in the other truck both died. When I got out of hospital, I went and stayed with this truck driver and his wife and family in the western suburbs of Sydney. And they were full on for Jesus. They'd given their lives to the Lord about a year beforehand. And we had some fascinating discussions. I was an atheist, um, but I was fascinated by uh, spiritual things, by um, the supernatural world. I just didn't believe in God. So I I called myself a spiritual atheist, if any such thing exists. (laughs) But it was over about six weeks, conversations with them and On a Sunday night, they were heading out to church, and I said, would it be okay if I came with you? And they said, sure. I'm sure on the inside, they were doing double backflips, and yes. (laughs) So I went to church with them, and it was a little church. It was a little building. Um, It was Bethel Foursquare Church. I don't even know if it still exists, but I went along, and there was probably maybe 25 people there, wooden floor, plastic chairs, a couple of guys out the front with guitars, and we sang some really old songs. That I, some of them I'm very glad we don't sing anymore. Some of you, if you've been around for a while, anyone remember? Joy is the flag flown high from the castle of my heart. <laughs> stop, stop. Ah, oh, come on. <laughs> I preached this last night and then they were like, why didn't you sing? And I said, well, I will tomorrow. So here I am. Let it fly in the sky, let the whole world know, let the whole world know, let the whole world know. And it went like that, right? Everyone got their hankies and tissues out. Mine's clean, just so you know. I wasn't so sure about some of the people in the auditorium where I was. I'm thinking, oh, no wonder this music's got a bit of boogie in it, you know. So they did that and they had a testimony time where people got up and talked about what God had done in their life and I'm sitting there crying, thinking, my goodness, God's real. The pastor got up and preached um, and he said, I'm going to talk to you from John 3.16, don't worry about turning to it, we all know what it says. And I'm sitting there going, I wonder what it says. (laughs) I don't know what he preached, all I know is at the end he said, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ, get up out of your seat and walk to the front. And I got up and walked out. I, didn't really, I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do this anyway, but I got to the front and one of the elders came and he said, so do you want to give your life to Jesus? And I said, I actually don't know. And he said, well, let's pray. So we prayed and nothing happened. And then he said, would you like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I didn't know there was one. Um, but I thought, 
I don't know. That's what I said to him, and, and he said, let's pray. It seemed to be his answer to everything. And so he prayed for me again. Again, I felt nothing, which doesn't matter, but I, afterwards everyone was saying, wow, that was amazing. How do you feel? And I didn't want to disappoint them, so I lied. My first Christian lie. I said, oh, no, really good. It's great. What are you supposed to feel? A few days later, I was lying in bed, and, um, and I started to pray, and I said, Lord, I really didn't know what I was doing a few nights ago, but I think I do now, and I, I, I want to follow you. And again, nothing happened. And I'm not saying anything necessarily needs to happen either, but nothing happened to me. For the next three months, um, travelling back to Western Australia and getting my old job back and um, uh, in, in Western Australia on the radio and all of that kind of stuff. And I, I really was genuine. I wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ. But I also remember that very much in my mind, I sensed a kind of a disappointment because there were still some sins that I hadn't done much of that I wanted to indulge in a bit more. And I knew that I couldn't be a Christian and do this stuff. Like I'd, I'd smoked a bit of grass, but I wanted to check out some of the other drugs. I'm being very honest with you. Um, I wanted to throw the best parties in town. I wanted to be popular. That was very important to me as a young person. And so I lasted for about three months as a follower of Jesus. And I moved back in with some of my old druggy friends. And uh, one of them, Don, who was a, uh, he was a chippy. And he, got, he did a, a carpentry job and they paid him with a massive bag of marijuana. And he brought it home one afternoon. He sat in the lounge and rolled up a great big joint and started smoking it. And he said, do you want some of this? And I went, nah, nah. All right, and we smoked the thing together, and that was my decline for the next couple of years. From the ages of 19 to 21, I turned my back on Jesus. And the fascinating thing is that when you turn your back on truth, you actually start looking for truth, but you've, start, you've turned your back on it. So for the next two years, I started doing all the things that in my mind I wanted to do. So whereas I just smoked a bit of grass, I got into almost every drug. I never shot heroin uh, that was more of my fear of needles than, than anything else. Um, I got into the occult. I got into New Age religion, transcendental meditation. You name it, I tried it. And after that two years, I was as low as I could possibly get. Um, every now and again, I felt this kind of little tug. And I, I said, yeah, I know you're there, God, but I'm not ready yet. And off I'd go. But as I say, I got about as low as I could get. I actually tried to take an overdose and, and take my life. So glad I failed. And um, I went out to visit a friend of mine uh, who was into all of the same stuff as me. And uh, he lived on a farm. And so I went out to see him and I said to him, I, said, um, I started talking about all the new agey stuff that we're involved in. And he said to me, Rob, I'm not into any of that anymore. The day before, he'd received a letter from mutual friends of ours who had left Western Australia and come over to Victoria. And um, they'd accepted Jesus as their saviour and lord. And they'd written the gospel out and sent him this letter and sitting in front of a log fire the night before, uh, tripping on LSD, he'd read the letter and decided to give his life to Jesus. And Jesus had come into his life. And next day I go and see him. And right there, as soon as he told me that, I didn't pray a prayer, didn't say any words, didn't pray the sinner's prayer, didn't get down on my knees. All, I just remember on the inside of my heart, I basically I just said yes, inside me. Like, yes, I, I was like Barnabas, just... I'd come to the end of myself. I'd done everything. All the things I thought would bring me joy and satisfaction and pleasure in life just ended up being horrible. And so I changed my mind and I changed my heart and I changed my direction and I started walking toward Jesus. And I've been on the journey with Jesus ever since. Amen.
And so are you. We're on a journey together with Jesus. And we're partnering together as brothers and sisters in Christ in this church community in, in journeying with Jesus Christ. So I'm going to pray for you in just a moment. Some of you might, you might be here, you know, just thinking, well, I haven't even begun the journey. And I'm happy to lead you in a prayer, but actually all you need to do on the inside of you is just go, just decide. Say, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to start following Jesus. You don't even know all that that entails right now. I'm still working it out. <laughs> but just start. Say, yes, Jesus, I'm going to start following you. And plug in here and get discipled and, and know what it's like to be a real follower of Jesus. And even if you've been on the journey for a few weeks or a few months or a few years or many years, as in my case, almost 40 years since that happened, 40 years next year, wow, um, you're still on the journey. There's still things to learn. Word of God is amazing. The riches of God's love and grace are unfathomable. We'll be working it out forever. Amen. What a wonderful journey. Be a part of it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time together in your word. Lord, I pray that this word will settle into our hearts and minds. I pray that particular question that I asked earlier, if there's anything right now, Lord God, that we need to deal with that before it's dealt with, we, we can't progress on the journey. I pray that you would identify anything in our lives, Lord God, like that. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, you will give us the strength and the grace to work through that, to get the victory over it, and to move on in this wonderful journey in you. Pray for anyone in this place, Lord God, or anyone listening to this online. They haven't even begun the journey. I pray that right now inside their hearts, they'll say, yes, Jesus. You'll wash them clean of all their sins. You'll fill them with your presence all made possible through your death and resurrection. We say, yes, Lord. And let us as a church community continue to journey together, helping one another get closer and closer to you. Lord Jesus, we pray in your precious name. All God's people said, amen.